remain standing for the reading of God's word. From 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest, that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to God. You may be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, and gather in your presence as your body to worship you and to glorify you. We pray that you would uh, be with the congregation now, Lord. Give us all ears to hear what your spirit speaks to the church. That you would be with me, that I would decrease and you would increase. Let the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure again to be with you all again. And I thank you all for having me and for Pastor Wayne for having me as well. As you see, this sermon text for today is significantly longer than the passage we went over last time. So um, let's dig into it. Who is the Antichrist? This answer depends a whole lot on your eschatology. For some, it has a lot to do with interpreting the scriptures based on what's taking place in the world around us. Uh, dispensationalists with a more literal hermeneutic uh, like to link this to the number of the beast in Revelation. They take what the Bible says about the Antichrist and they personify it into this sensational, evil as can possibly be, Satan incarnate who wants to destroy Israel, the worship of God, and to bring forth hell on earth. This view has a lot more in line with Hollywood uh, than it does the Bible. It does make for good uh, sensational storytelling. It takes a messy reality that we have in here and it puts it into a neat little box. Now, if we could only take all the evil in this world and put it in one man, then that is our enemy. 
but this is an error. And I believe this error stems from another error, which is to overestimate the power of Satan. Satan is not God's equal. It is not the case that just as Jesus is God become man, that Antichrist is Satan embodied as a man. Uh, This overestimation of the power of Satan uh, runs through a dispensationalist mindset. Not intentionally, but it is a result. Uh, To them, we don't win down here. In fact, it's going to get worse and worse until it's so bad there's seven literal years of great tribulation and then the judgments of Revelation and the second coming, the battle of Armageddon, and somewhere in there, depending on what tribulation view you hold to, there's some secret rapture where the church, which is not Israel, uh, is caught up to the heavens. And some of you all may have seen uh, the movie Thief in the Night, or Left Behind. It's an interesting take, but it's wrong on many fronts. On the other end of the coin, uh, some of the reformers were also responding to current cultural and ecclesiastical climate of the day. Uh, They held to the position that the Pope of Rome was the Antichrist. Even the original Westminster Confession of Faith states that the Pope is the Antichrist. Now, this was changed in the American Revision, Uh, But the point being that it's not necessarily a modern invention for people to interpret the Bible based on their cultural current times. So who does John say that the Antichrist is? If you're taking notes, uh, I made this nice and with an alliteration for you. Point one is going to be Antichrists. Point two is going to be the anointed ones. And point three is going to be abiding So let's dig in. Point one, Antichrist. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. It is the last hour. What does this mean? Is it the last hour for us as we're reading this currently? I think it's a natural tendency when we first read something is to instinctively assume that it's directly to us and its application is to our present circumstances. But we have to remember John was writing this probably around us in the 60s, 60 AD. So it was the last hour to them. Uh, But it is the last hour to us as well. So many of you uh, should be familiar with last time we talked about the already not yet aspect. In the sermon before, we brought up the already not yet aspect that's present throughout all of Jesus' teachings and the apostles. Now, the immediate context was the time was approaching in which judgment was going to fall onto Jerusalem. It was going to be the destruction of the whole old covenant system uh, with the destruction of the temple. The other context in which we take the last hour is the entire span of church history from Christ's ascension to his second coming. The Greek there for last hour is eschate hora. Eschate is a form of eschatos, which of course is where we get our term eschatology, meaning the study of the last things. So contrary to the old covenant system was the, the first things, the last things, is what we have in this whole church history span of time. Now, Antichrist, is not, is, he's not mentioned a lot by name, specifically, but the concept of Antichrist is referenced throughout the New Testament. 
Specifically, uh, Paul refers to him as the, the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction in 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul also says in that passage that Jesus will be the one to destroy him himself. Now, I believe that this passage in 2 Thessalonians is referring to the high priest in Israel at the coming destruction in 70 AD. James Jordan argues that the high priest was an apostate. He denied Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was the true object that the temple and all that was in it typified and worship was to be directed towards. Matthew 23, 2 says that the scribes and Pharisees seated themselves in the seat of Moses. This man of lawlessness very well may have been Ananias, whom Paul himself rebuked in Acts 23, 3, and who oversaw the murder of the apostle James. In Revelation, Antichrist is not presented as a man, but as two beasts, the sea beast and the land beast. The sea represents the Gentiles and the political power. The land beast represents Israel and the religious power. The direct and immediate context and application of Antichrist to John and his readers would have been Rome and the Herodians. This can be extrapolated from Daniel as well as from Matthew. Uh, In short, the Antichrist is anyone who seeks to glorify himself in the place of God wars against the saints, and attacks the church. It was Rome and the Herodians who worked together as Antichrist to kill our Lord. This is why the number of the beast is the number of man. Man, apart from God, seeks to elevate himself in the place of God. Continuing on in verse 18. Even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Many antichrists denote that antichrist is not just one individual. Anyone who is against or who is contrary to the church is antichrist. You are either for him or against him. Those against Christ and who do not acknowledge his lordship over us and give him his due worship is of their father the devil and is necessarily antichrist. The idea that they know that it is the last hour because many antichrists have come is important for the immediate context in which John was writing. Jesus had told his apostles that the world would hate them because they hated Jesus. He told them some would not taste death before all these things took place in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, talking about the coming destruction of the temple and judgment on Jerusalem in 70 A.D., But many of them would taste death. They would be martyred for their faith. They were persecuted by both Rome and the Jews. And those persecutors were antichrists. Also, if you remember, I had talked about the beginnings of proto-Gnosticism, and especially the Judaizers, which was an issue at the time. The proto-Gnostics taught that all flesh was evil, so God really didn't come in the flesh. Therefore, Jesus wasn't really fully God and fully man. They denied Jesus. And even more prominent at this time were the Judaizers. It's warned about all over the New Testament of those who sought to bring Christians back under the bondage of the Jewish system. They wanted to put Christians back under the law and the traditions of man. They denied Jesus was the Christ. They were antichrists. 
They would join the churches and they would begin to spread their false doctrine as a poison throughout the body and would lead people astray. They were wolf in sheep's clothes. Verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. This verse is used all the time by us Reformed folks to defend the perseverance of the saints. It's not necessarily incorrect. Uh, The immediate context was regarding the apostates in the church at the time that John was writing. Um, But it's similar in application to the apostates that we have today. But it's directly talking about uh, those who were the Judaizers who sought to infiltrate Christ's church with the false doctrines. Um, and those who would be swayed by this false teaching and leave the body of Christ and begin to deny Christ. Now, Paul warned about these false teachers in Galatians. In chapter 1 of Galatians, verses 6 through 9, Paul writes, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. That word accursed is anathema. That's a heavy, harsh word. It's a harsh truth. Paul goes on in Galatians chapter 2 talking about how even Peter and Barnabas were starting to get caught up in the Judaizing hypocrisy and he rebuked them for it. Judaizing was a real threat. Some of the teachings of the Judaizers was even the cause of the first documented presbytery meeting that we have in Acts chapter 15. In verse 1 and 2 of Acts chapter 15, it says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. These teachings, they were prevalent at the time because many of those first Christians were people that came out of Judaism and they were accustomed to the traditions therein. Some of them, I would grant with charity, were ignorant and they had good intentions. Some were intentionally infiltrating the church to convert people back to Judaism, kind of like what further down in church history um, was done with the Jesuits. In the Counter-Reformation. The Jews are necessarily Antichrist because they deny that Jesus is the Christ. Anyone who denies Jesus is the Christ is Antichrist. In Revelation 3, verse 9, there's the letter to the church in Philadelphia, in which John writes, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them fall down at your feet and acknowledge I have loved you. Now, Jesus is the true Israel. The church is Israel. The whole system, the Old Testament Jewish system, pointed to Christ. So when it's talking about the synagogue of Satan and it's talking about the Jews, it's not talking about ethnic Jews, but the religious Talmudic Jews that oppose and deny Jesus. 
Let's go to point two, the anointing. What is the contrast to the Antichrist? Verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. This is what sets the sheep apart from the goats, or in this case, the wolves. The Antichrists and the Anointed Ones. That is the anointing. The anointing is a reference to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The anointing from the Holy One is God's Spirit within us who enlightens our minds. The anointing is pictured in our baptism. In Exodus chapter 28, Aaron and his sons were anointed and consecrated to the Lord to serve as priests. The anointing, putting oil on the head, was them being set apart. In 1 Peter 2.9, it says, We are a chosen people, royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. We are all anointed as priests in the sense that we have access directly to Christ, our mediator. And as this holy nation, we are all united in our baptism, in our anointing. Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The anointing is the Spirit of God come upon us like the believers on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God, this anointing is what convicts us of our sin. He illuminates our understanding. He's the one that helps us to grow in spiritual maturity. It says in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear is another word for reverence. It is our reverence of the Lord through the power of this Holy Spirit that allows us to grow in our understanding. A true understanding of God gives us a true understanding of the world around us and better equips us in discernment. In verse 20, continuing with the knowing all things, it isn't John saying that they know absolutely all things. He's saying that they know what he's talking about concerning truth versus the lie. The real versus the counterfeit. He's talking about discernment. Verse 21. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and no lie is of the truth. John is not saying these things because he believes that his church is gullible. He's confirming their understanding that these people, these Judaizers, these antichrists that deny the faith of Jesus Christ are not of them. When they are marked out as false and deny Christ, they are not to doubt their decision to let them go. For they were not of them, or else they would still be of them. But it still serves as a reminder for those who are not as far along in their spiritual maturity to not be swept away by false teaching. Verse 22. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Now, if you look past the immediate context that John was writing in and take these two verses, it's pretty clear that there are many, many antichrists. 
Even today, a statement like this is very exclusive and very unpopular by our society's standards. Last time I was here, we talked about uh, the world and the different world systems. All of these world systems and systems of belief that deny Jesus Christ, they are antichrist. We can go down the list. We got Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, New Agers, occultists, atheists, agnostics, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. The list goes on and on. It isn't just anyone who denies Jesus. It also includes denying the true Jesus by fashioning your own conception of Jesus that is contrary to the teachings taught in Scripture of who Jesus is. The Mormons have a Jesus, but he's just one of a multitude of gods. It isn't Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses have a Jesus, but it's a recapitulation of the old Arian heresy that denies that Jesus is equal to the Father and that he was created. It is heresy. It is Antichrist. Now, you're probably aware that at this point that John's concern is not about those outside of the church, like the pagans who deny Christ. You could tell this by his frequent use of the term us. He's talking about us. He's concerned with those within the gates. He's talking about those within the church. John would be more concerned today with people like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Hebrew Roots Judaizers than he would the God-hating leftists because the God-hating leftists aren't seeking to infiltrate the church with their false doctrine. The lie is always more dangerous when it's padded with true things. And what I mean is this. Heretics use a lot of Christianese. And they say a lot of Christian things that to an undiscerning ear may sound like the truth. But remember, at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Satan used scripture in his tempting of our Lord. Those were real temptations. But Jesus was equipped with the true knowledge of the word because he is the living word. This is why it's important that we have God's word abiding in us. But more on that in a little bit. Verse 23, whoever denies the son does not have the father either. He who acknowledges the son has the father also. So how is the son inextricably linked to the father? John tells us himself um, in the gospel that he wrote of an exchange between Jesus and the Jewish leaders that illustrates this. In John chapter 10, verse 22, says, Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Verse 30, I and my Father are one. We believe in the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God. 
They are the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. In continuing in John's gospel, in John chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So back to our text. If you deny the Son, you deny the Father. If you acknowledge the Son, you acknowledge the Father. So the religious Jews who believe that they know God because they know the Father are, are unbelievers and they are antichrist because they deny the Son. And if you deny the Son, you deny the Father. Let's move on to point three, abiding. Verse 24. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he promised us, eternal life. This is that truth that John exhorted earlier when he was addressing the different people in his church. Knowledge of the Father. He said, Fathers, I write to you because you know him who is from the beginning. And young men, because the word of God abides in you. John is saying, this promise is for you, and you need to cling to it. You have the truth. Cling to it. We talked a few weeks back about the need for spiritual disciplines. Remember the signs. Practice them regularly. Repeat them incessantly. You need to live in the Word so that it lives in you. And this is all a reiteration of that. Our God is a covenant God. That is, he is the one who made an oath with us. And, he, and the promises for maintaining our standing in the covenant. We are to do what we ought to hold fast to these truths that he has so mercifully revealed to us. And we need to let those promises be true. Our God keeps his promises. This is why it is so important for us to remember who God is who we are, and be encouraged by the recognition of our standing in him. We need reminders. We need regular encouragement. This is a vital reason why we ought not forsake the assembling of the saints every Lord's Day. And not only on the Lord's Day. We should be exercising hospitality for one another. We should be spending time with one another outside of the corporate worship service. Fellowship is a means of grace. It is a way that we can build one another up and sharpen one another. And we can catch one another if we stumble. You can't do those things if you are disjointed from the body. Remember, when I just read Psalm 133, what it was referring, referring to, the blessing of the unity of the brethren. We are all one, so we ought to be living in harmony and encouraging one another. Just as the Father and the Son are one, we are to be as one. In Ephesians chapter 4, 
Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We should be reflecting that same unity that is seen in the Trinity. Just like the consummation of marriage, where two become one flesh, we are one with Christ Jesus. He is the groom and we are his bridegroom. His spirit dwells within us. We are one. And as Christ's body, we are one with Christ. This is what it means to be anointed and to abide. John goes on down in verse 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Here John is again reiterating what I mentioned above. John knows that his people knew these things. He wasn't assuming that they're gullible and easily swayed. But he is emphasizing the warning that there are people who are trying to deceive them. But the best defense against the lie is the truth. He is reassuring them that they have this truth. They know the truth. If you know what a real $100 bill looks like, it is easier to spot the counterfeit. If you know the truth, it is easier to spot the lie. God has given us his truth. We are to live that truth. We have an anointing of the Holy Spirit, and we are able to walk in the light. We know the truth because of this fact. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Christ. We are anointed because his spirit lives in us, his people. By virtue of being in Christ, we too are anointed. By our baptism, we are anointed. We have the truth. His spirit guides us and gives us wisdom concerning the things pertaining to him. Those with his Holy Spirit will abide in him. Those who do not have this anointing will not abide. This is how he can say that they were not of us. Verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And here is John's exhortation to his people. Abide in him. If we are in Christ, if his spirit indwells in us, we may be confident at his coming. Remember, this book is all about assurance. Christ is the anointed one. Christ is righteous. When we bow the knee and proclaim Christ as our Lord and Savior, we participate in his death, burial, and resurrection. We are washed of our sin. We are cleansed. Our sin is taken to the grave with him, and we are born new with Christ in his resurrection. 
His spirit comes upon us and we are in Christ. We are in his body. This is all illustrated in our baptism. Through Christ's work and our allegiance to him as King of kings and Lord of lords, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness because our righteousness is but filthy rags apart from him. As the Spirit illuminates our understanding and renews our minds and conforms us to his image in our sanctification, we're able to die more and more unto sin and live unto righteousness. Because we are in Christ and he is righteous, we're able to practice righteousness. This doesn't mean we don't fail. This doesn't mean we don't sin. We do. But again, we are called to confess our sins because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the very practice of repenting and confessing our sins and asking for forgiveness and forgiving those who sin against us is practicing righteousness. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Oh Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you are so merciful that you sent your Son to us, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have given us your Son. It's not only our example on how we should live and conduct ourselves, but as the perfect sacrifice to cleanse us from our unrighteousness, Lord. We thank you for your mercy, for forgiving us of our sins. We pray that you would equip us to go outside of these walls and be a light in the darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.